This is Ryan Martin, the host of Psychology and Stuff. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, it's probably because you like psychology. And if you like psychology, you will love All the Rage, the podcast on anger and violence out of Phoenix Studios. On All the Rage, my co-host Chuck Ryback and I talk about everything from internet trolls to toxic masculinity to road rage. We bring you mad science, anger management tips, and tons of stories about people losing their cool. You can learn more about All the Rage and other Phoenix Studios podcasts at uwgb.edu forward slash podcast. and welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast of the University of Wisconsin Green Bay Psychology Program. I'm Ryan Martin, chair of the psychology program and host of Psychology and Stuff. And I'm going to introduce our guests in a minute, but first I want to remind you that you can get involved in the conversation by liking our page on Facebook at uh, Psychology and Stuff on Facebook and or follow us on Twitter. Uh, Twitter at Psych and Stuff. Um, there's great stuff out there about the show, but also psychology more generally. Plus, we take requests. So if you want to hear about a particular topic, uh, that's a good way to let us know. And speaking of those requests, today we have a really exciting guest. Um, you heard him back in 2016 when he talked about his research on the podcast. He's a cognitive neuroscientist who studies empathy and morality. Dr. Jason Cowell, how are you? I'm doing great. It's great to be here and great to be back on the podcast. Very good. So tell people a little bit about your expertise before we get started in this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've spent the majority of my career studying uh, kids' brains as they develop and looking at how they process good and bad uh, actions of others. So what's going on in their brains as they decide if someone's doing something good or doing something bad, and also what's going on in their brains when they try to take another person's perspective, when they feel sorry or concerned for another person. So that's the empathy side right. of things. And so is, we wanted to point out at the beginning, you, you don't necessarily have an expertise in autism specifically, um, but you teach courses on cognitive neuroscience and, and a host of other... Uh, yeah, ab absolutely. Courses. So my, my research hasn't been in autism uh, spectrum disorders. It's been on the opposite side of things. So a lot of the, the deficits that we see in autism spectrum, I study the opposite side. I study executive function. I study perspective taking. I study a lot of the things of what could go right, uh, right. in these cases. But you're certainly familiar with a lot of the uh, kind of research absolutely. on yeah. uh, I autism. teach about this in almost all my classes right. absolutely so, so very good so let's um, start out first by just talking about what autism spectrum disorder is so I'm going to give the briefest of history lessons and say that you know going back to uh, the DSM-4 the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual uh, uh, version 4 um, it, there was a section called pervasive developmental disorders um, and it included things like Asper uh, yes, uh, Asperger's disorder, autistic disorder, child disintegrative disorder, and, and a host of others. Um, basically involved impairment in, or pervasive impairment in three main areas, social interaction, communication, and then a host of, of what we call stereotyped or repetitive behaviors. When the DSM-5 came out uh, about five years ago, it was removed, or um, the, the section was removed from the DSM-5 and it was replaced with a single quote-unquote umbrella disorder that we call autism spectrum disorder. So we, they removed some of those disorders and this was actually pretty big news at the time. Jason, I'm, I'm sure you remember um, that Asperger's disorder in particular was removed. That was a big deal. Um, and now it is, uh, those symptoms though are included under this quote-unquote umbrella disorder, uh, autism spectrum disorder. Um, and really, the, there's two main sections of types of category. Excuse me, two main categories of symptoms here. And we've got these deficits in social communications and, intera and interactions, things like 
social and emotional reciprocity, deficits in nonverbal, deficits in relationships, things like that. Um, we also have these repetitive behaviors or interests and activities, um, like stereotyped repetitive motor movements, what we call stimming, um, insistence on sameness, uh, hypersensitivity to sensory input, fixated interests, and things like that. Um, and so that gives you a sense of what uh, autism spectrum disorder is, and we'll unpack some of those symptoms as we talk, I'm sure. Um, so Jason, one of the things that happens is I, I consistently run into students, um, I run into parents uh, of, of children with autism who tell me, and I've heard these words directly, I just want to know what's going on in his brain. I want to know what's going on in her brain, right? And, you know, seem really sort of just be struggling with not having an answer to that question. Now, we don't have the full answer to that question, I know, yeah, yeah. But, but based on what we have, what's going on in the brain? Yeah, I mean, this is the question that's that's been funded with millions and millions of dollars over the past 20 years uh, from various national agencies, and it's, it's the question of what are different aspects structurally or functionally in the brain, so just what does it look like that's different in adults that are on the spectrum, uh, how do their brains function differently, maybe how differently connected are these parts of the brain. And it's part of the issue with autism spectrum is that it is an umbrella concept, and as we get into this umbrella concept, there are a lot of variables that play into brain development. So uh, things that we know and that have been around for a while kind of started with uh, a researcher named Simone Baron-Cohen out of uh, the United Kingdom. And uh, Baron-Cohen's work was looking at eyes and was specifically, it's called the mind in the eyes task, but he was really trying to look at how we process the emotions of others by just looking at the eyes alone in the nasal bridge. And it turns out most of us are pretty good at this. We can, we can just look at the eyes and have a decent idea of what emotion that person is feeling. Uh, and Baron-Cohen did this work with uh, groups of children and groups of adults that were on the spectrum. And what he found was severe impairment in this. So he tried to follow forward and say, okay, let's do this task in the functional neuroimaging machine, so an fMRI, and let's look at what areas seem to be different. And by adulthood, when you're trying to do this kind of mind-reading task by looking at the eyes, so mind in the eyes, uh, you tend to see differences in amygdala activation. And this started the entire field that was called an amygdala disorder of autism spectrum. It's a little less accepted now, but it was kind of the start of the brain side of autism, which was to say, okay, it seems like uh, these small almonds that are, uh, so amygdala means almonds, and they're two small features that are uh, subcortical, so inside the cerebral cortex quite a bit. These areas are responsible for a lot having to do with emotion processing and emotion regulation uh, and, and different aspects of our, our everyday functioning on, a, on an emotional side. And they seem to be less active in individuals uh, who are adults that are on the spectrum. So it carried forward out of, all right, there are amygdala differences. And people said, well, well, great, let's look at this in kids. Let's look at this in non-human primates or in rats uh, who might show social aspects. So a lot of neuroscience and what we know about the neuroscience of autism comes from trying to find animal models. So it's you find animals that show comparable social abilities to humans. You try to find ones that seem to have social interactions, that seem to uh, try to have some level, and this is an overstatement, but some level of empathy. So there's arguments that 
uh, dogs have empathy. It's an overstatement. But there's arguments that certain animals seem to show some level of perspective taking for other animals. And so what they've done in the past decade or two is to go in and lesion parts of the amygdala or lesions, some of these emotion processing areas to see if they can replicate autism spectrum. And this is where the amygdala theory hasn't panned out as well, which is in animal models, you don't produce the full um, umbrella that is uh, autism spectrum. You, you produce emotion deficits, uh, so emotion processing deficits. Um, I can carry forward in some of the other parts or we can... Uh, well, talk a little bit about... Um... So describe what the amygdala does for, yeah. for people who aren't familiar with the amygdala. Yeah, so the amygdala is part of a larger system uh, that used to be called the limbic system. Still, a lot of people call it the limbic system. But I call it the limbic system. I, I still tend to call it the limbic system, too. Um, if I should change the name, I will. No, it's all good. It's all good. It's just it's a, it's a host of different areas. that uh, So parts in your limbic system are your olfactory bulb, which is where your smell is processed. It's why part of uh, smells immediately trigger emotional uh, feelings oftentimes. And it's because it's part of a fast-acting and highly myelinated, so a very efficient set of uh, smaller areas that are uh, connected and fast in processing things. Uh, amygdala particularly seem to process, uh, it used to be that we thought they processed fear, but now it seems to be subtle aspects of emotion. Uh, oftentimes when there's subtle emotional cues that people are giving, that's when we see a lot of uh, amygdala activation. That's why you'll that's why it's not surprising that the amygdala does seem to be differentially activated in individuals on the spectrum because it is those subtle facial cues that oftentimes are not, it's a telltale behavioral deficit that happens. Is it possible, if, uh, you know, as someone who doesn't know nearly as much about the brain as you do, is it possible that some of the difficulty in animal models has to do just how sophisticated the amygdala is? Yeah. As a um, structure? Absolutely. So we know that the majority of animals have a comparable looking um, brain stem. So some of the more basic areas of the brain that are responsible for our attentiveness and our arousal levels in our body and our movements, uh, those, those are pretty comparable across most, at least mammalian species. Um, it's these, it's these uh, subcortical and cortical structures that differ a lot when we get to um, non-human primates have a comparable amygdala set. But um, yeah, it's, it's possible that structurally they're not there. Um, what we found, though, in the past decade, is though, is that the amygdala is definitely different, but there are a host of other areas that also show differences. And it's not surprising where these areas are based off of all the behavioral deficits that we constantly show. So uh, one of the things that you, you mentioned already was that uh, we tend to not be able to... Uh, uh, in, individuals on the autism spectrum disorder tend not to be able to take the perspective of another person particularly well or have issues in engaging in interpersonal interactions. And there are, there's a network uh, of the, the middle area of your prefrontal cortex, so right up front in your brain, that connects to uh, a part, it's called your temporal parietal junction or your uh, posterior superior temporal sulcus. So it's an area that's in the top back of your brain on the right hand side. And that area in morality in empathy, in a lot of different things, seems to be more active when you're trying to understand someone's intention in their action, or if you're trying to take that person's perspective. So it seems like um, those two areas are critically involved, and both of those actually show underactivation as well when we're asking individuals on the spectrum to do perspective-taking tasks. 
Um, they don't look different structurally, and so that's, a, that's an important piece. Whereas the amygdala early on shows slight structural differences, by adults, uh, or uh, by adulthood, uh, white matter tracks, so the, um, the connections between the different brain areas, uh, don't look that different. Um, there seems to be a different developmental pathway, but not necessarily a different overall structural aspect by adulthood. And, you know, one of the things, uh, I want to hear more about different models as we go, or yeah. different thoughts yeah. on this as we go, but one of the things that I'm always struck by when we talk about uh, this piece is that in some ways it feels like we're talking about cause, but in some ways it feels like we're not talking about cause, because something caused these developmental differences, right? And and that's what we're not necessarily... That's There's the big question, which is... Uh... It's not surprising that by adulthood, we see these differences in brain areas that are activating. Uh, something you and I have previously talked about is, is an area that was identified a decade ago called the facial fusiform area that is const constantly seems to be different in uh, adults on the spectrum. And this area, a decade ago, I would have told you was about processing the faces of other people and even facial expressions. But recent literature seems to suggest, no, it's about things that we've become experts at, things we have a lot of experience with. So part of what's tricky about brain development is that the state that we're seeing in adulthood isn't something that was immediately present in early childhood. It's something that's developed. Our, our brain is very plastic in how it develops, meaning the kinds of experiences that we have, the kinds of things we put priorities priorities towards will hone the networks as they develop. And that means that it's not surprising that mm -hmm. uh, the executive function networks and the perspective taking networks all seem to be a little amiss in activity by adulthood. It's because right. we're not doing these things as much if, if you're on the spectrum. Right. But so then, but also I would argue too that, so let's even say we're talking about children. Yeah. And okay, so we identify a some sort of structural difference yeah. in a child who has, or, or whatever, how a child who has autism. Yeah. Why, I mean, that doesn't tell us why that structural difference. No, that's, and, and so this is where a lot of people are trying to head towards right now. Um, one of the main people in the, in the field of autism, uh, Corshane, has for a long time been looking at a prenatal argument for uh, a cause of autism. And what they've been trying to find is they've said, okay, if we have these structural and functional brain differences that are present arguably early in development, you can sometimes start to see things as early as six months, uh, maybe we need to look back into the prenatal environment to figure out what's going on. And one of the leading causes, uh, well, and I put causes in quotes, one of the leading arguments seems to be the prenatal stressful environment in the second trimester. So this isn't the development of the central nervous system starts in the first trimester of uh, pregnancy, but it seems like a lot of the complexities that will later develop um, start to have their predispositions, so their, their early ends in that second trimester, and it's the complexity of how the neurons are, um, so the, the number of spines to the dendrites, uh, for instance, a part of the neuron structure, they're way more complex in less stressful prenatal environments. Um, so if, there, if there's less stress in the prenatal environment, if there's a more enriched environment postnatally, it seems like there's more enriched brain growth that happens. And uh, one of the early identifiers in, in 
uh, of autism seems to be linked to prenatal, what known prenatal stressors. Uh, one of those could be uh, maternal infections that have to, that are um, viruses for the most part. There's some evidence that that might increase the likelihood of these kinds of genetic mutations that can occur. All of this, though, is kind of a I like to call them gene-by-environment interactions, meaning uh, because there was prenatal stress that does not cause autism, it increases the susceptibility given a host of different genes that with certain environmental inputs, you might start to develop these kinds of things in, in early childhood. Right. And, and from a genetics perspective, too, we're talking about a disorder that has a really high yeah. concordance rate. Oh, if you look at identical twins, right? I mean, I, I hear numbers anywhere from 60 to 91% yeah. Yeah. concordance rate, meaning if one twin has it, what, what percentage of the time does the other twin have it? Yeah, so the, the, the concordance rates are quite high when we're talking about identical twins in, in autism spectrum. It's, this is actually one that, on, on a genetic level at least, uh, most researchers who are trying to identify potential individuals who could develop autism are looking at the siblings of people who already, so not even identical, but uh, di either dizygotic twins, so fraternal twins, or just siblings. Uh, Actually, the, the rates are quite high there, too, in the 20 to 25% range, I think I've heard. Um, and so it's, those are quite high as well. Uh, identical twin rates are, are over 50%, uh, where one having it, there's a, there's a 50% likelihood that something will develop, at least something on the spectrum. Uh, and so it's surprising because there is a, there is a genetic contribution to this, but the, gen the susceptibility genes are, are varied. Uh, there are, at last count, I want to say, and this is something over 300 potential uh, variations that could lead to higher susceptibilities. And they're all based off of uh, gene transcription early on or synthesis of proteins, uh, aspects for um, the synapses or uh, the dendritic spine complexity. So they're all based off of structural aspects that could happen. And that is... Those are just based on that because later on, these are the structural differences that we see using MRI. Okay. So I'm going to throw in a couple of other just sort of things that are, are cited in, tech, in the textbooks I've used and things like that that yeah. I'd love to, yeah, yeah. to hear your thoughts on. One is um, we, we advanced parental age uh, as a predictor, that it sounds like. Yeah, so this is uh, advanced parental age across the board, um, and it's not—it's not even the umbrella of autism spectrum disorders. It's uh, developmental disorders in general tend to have some root in genetic mutation, and the likelihood of of genetic mutation increases as parental age increases, uh, and so that's that's one of those where. Um, Fragile X, Down syndrome, autism spectrum, all have a slight increase as you're getting to advanced parental age. Um, it's not it's not causal at all. It's just that the likelihood of mutation seems to rise slightly. Okay. Another thing uh, we we talked we've talked about a lot uh, in textbooks I've read and things like that is accelerated head growth. Yeah, this is this is one of the the conundrums in autism spectrum, which is. Um, it seems like, particularly over frontal and temporal areas, there is a larger uh, cortex, neocortex volume. So the overall size of the brain seems to get larger faster in individuals uh, who are on the spectrum. 
But the thing is, their brains tend not to be larger by adulthood. So it seems like it's a faster growth. Uh, but one of the arguments for this is that there's faster growth of all of these neurons. So they've, they've reached neurogenesis. There's all the neurons that, are, that will likely be there for a while. And as they're trying to connect, because there isn't the complexity on the connection, that, that well, those white matter aspects I was talking about, what you get is a large volume, but less connectedness, less efficiency in the brain. And so what happens is uh, a user-lose-it principle in the brain, as you, as you don't use these, um, these neurons and as you don't use these connections, they get pruned off. And so there's an argument that there might be advanced pruning as well to parts of... Autism. Can you expand on that a little bit? I'm curious about the, the pruning piece. How does that work? And, and yeah, so in the in the in basic brain development, what happens is uh, we develop a lot of neurons, and those neurons uh, have these growth cones. So they have a part of the neuron that goes out and is attracted towards other neurons and uh, tries to get close to them and it knows to get close to them based off chemicals that are present in the brain. So part of that's the structure of that neuron as it's starting to try to make connections is to be attracted to certain chemicals and be uh, repelled by other chemicals. So it's attracted to other neurons that it, it, it would want to communicate with and not in a humanistic sort of way there but you know. um, and then and when it gets close, what happens is it starts to send chemicals back and forth at the synaptic level. So you have that chemical synapse. That's how our, our, our neurons communicate with each other is that um, there's an electrical impulse that happens within a neuron that tells the end of the neuron to uh, release chemicals into this gap between the two different neurons. And then the second neuron picks up part of those chemicals, changes its charge, and then sends an electrical pulse through it. Or, or doesn't. And what happens in brain development is when neurons are, are connected to other neurons, they overconnect. They connect to tons. And then the connections that are used the most are the ones that remain. The ones that don't tend to have a lot of use, that aren't sending a lot of signals, tend to be pulled back. So our brain is really efficient. As it's developing, it's going to become increasingly efficient. So you prune uh, or get rid of, kind of like a bush, you would prune a bush. Um, you, you prune uh, a hedge in order to uh, make sure it's it grows better same thing with your brain your brain is actively pruning connections that you're not using but it also kills off neurons that have no use any longer and so that's one of the arguments about brain development is that if we have too much development to start and too many connections or not enough connections then uh, there's accelerated brain pruning that could happen and so that might be what's... It could be what's underlying part of this, is that we see abnormal early growth, but there could be a process of pruning. Part of the issue with actually testing these theories is identifying individuals early enough on that will develop autism spectrum is extremely tricky. There's a couple of groups trying to do it right now, and they're trying to identify as low as 12 to 18 months to see what's happening there. And uh, there's some progress. There was a science paper that came out last year that could identify siblings of people with autism uh, spectrum, and they were trying to identify early electrical coherence between sides of the brain. And I think I've seen some of the research looking at specifically at eye contact and using that yeah. as a predictor of yeah there's there there is some early ish 
research on eye contact, that's more in the 18 months range from what okay. I've seen. Uh, they're trying to go earlier than that. They're okay. trying to get down into the six to 12 month range where theoretically some of these structural differences should be manifesting. And they're trying to go, okay, how can we identify these individuals without scanning everyone because that's too expensive and we can't possibly do that. Right, and this is where our worlds collide, collide a little bit because you know, from an assessment and diagnosis and treatment perspective, that early identification is so critical that yeah. this is a condition that we know um, early intervention matters um, and matters a, a ton. You know, that the, uh, much of a difference can be made when we are able to identify it early. And that's exactly it. So, I mean, I wish I had better answers, but part of it right now is uh, this research is brand new. There's mm -hmm. there's so many groups around the U.S. and, and elsewhere that are that have huge grants to try to have this early identification so that we can intervene early and often. Right, because for a long time the, the intervention, I mean the, the, the thing that stood out so much to clinicians was the delayed speech, right? And that, yeah. that really was around age two that we're yeah. talking about. So the idea of getting even six months earlier than that yeah is significant, but it sounds like they're trying to go even earlier. They're trying to go even earlier. Uh, there's There's been several groups that have tried to look at EG uh, in the brain, so uh, the electrical signals that are being sent, and there's this there's one wave that it works on uh, that seems to be, um, it's called gamma, and it starts at about 35 hertz and goes to about 80 hertz, which doesn't mean much. It's just a wave that's happening, and it's not how much gamma, it's, it's how much between different parts of the brain there seems to be synchrony. And what we know about gamma so far is that it seems to be, there, there seems to be more gamma when you're trying to integrate sensory uh, things across the board. There seems to be more when you're engaging in some level of social cognition. So all of these seem to be the primary areas that you might be able to find the, they're called the biomarkers of autism at early ages is what people are going for. But yeah, gamma I find fascinating because it's, it is tapping into the other piece that oftentimes is in spectral uh, autism spectrum, which is sensory issues, uh, like over Sorry, I'm, I'm saying this wrong, but hypersensitivity. Hypersensitivity. Thank you. Yeah, um, hypersensitivity, and it's it's interesting because part of an escape from hypersensitivity is an integration across multiple modalities of sense, and that seems to be where gamma is a little bit aberrant in uh, early ages right now. So I want to go back to something you said uh, earlier about the, the prenatal, the looking at prenatal stuff. Um, you mentioned um, uh, you mentioned infection and things yeah. like that. I'm curious because I've come across research that points to um, various types of toxins that, that people might be exposed to, um, and actually they're pollutants. Um, and I would sp speak specifically to um, air pollution is something I've at least read about. I, where where's the research at with that? Is there any reason to think that that is influencing things prenatally or uh, directly towards autism spectrum? It's it's unclear. Okay. Um, towards developmental disorders across the board, yeah. I mean, uh, teratogens is what all of these substances are called, and those could be uh, a lack of certain things being in the body, like folic acid, which is something you should have uh, prenatally and are in prenatal vitamins, uh, all the way to um, there are certain types of drugs that were uh, that, that were given for acne uh, two decades ago that yielded massive birth uh, deficits and cognitive impairments later. And so there are arguments that things like excessive air pollution might have an effect. It's unclear if that would lead towards the types of things we would see towards autism spectrum.
what else? Anything else we should be talking about before we call it a day? You know, really at this point, uh, we just know that there are a lot of areas that aren't surprising. There's your prefrontal cortex by adulthood shows differences in, in function. Your anterior cingulate cortex, which is way inside of the frontal lobe, also seems to be different. And your ACC is really about emotion regulation. So it's not surprising that in adulthood we see all these functional differences. We see some structural differences. Really at this point we're trying to say how do we get there? Is this because individuals uh, that are on the spectrum spend years and years uh, specializing in certain things and not specializing in other things like social interactions and so our brain has developed accordingly or is it that some of these early deficits cascade into other deficits and I think that's the big question that's sitting out there with autism right now so where can people learn more? Anywhere you can think that people can turn for more information? I'm putting you on the spot here. Yeah, no. Um, I I would highly suggest the work of Corshane. I think that, that, is, that that's the guy I was talking about uh, that seems to have this prenatal emphasis. There's some really good publications that have come out in the past few years, and one of them is a science pub from a consortium that's located at, I think it's UNC Chapel Hill and uh, University of Minnesota and a couple of different places. There's some really good research coming out and they're uh, trying to share that knowledge with others and I'd say that's a good starting point. Very good. So well thank you very very much. Absolutely it's been my pleasure you're, to be here. I want to ask but I think I might know the answer. You're not on Twitter are you? I am not on Twitter. Uh, that's okay. A lot of people aren't. So, <laughs> but, I, but if you are there I want to tell people how to find you. So um, well thank you very much. I appreciate that. A um, couple things that I want to talk about before we go, and I'm going to need Sophie's help. Um, I'm not sure what our next episode is. The next episode is The Experimenter. So we are showing the movie The Experimenter here on campus, and that is on a certain date. The 13th of uh, probably February um, here on campus at 5 o'clock in the Christie Theater. It's going to be great. This, the Experimenter, if you're not familiar with it, it's a movie about uh, Stanley Milgram and the infamous Stanley Milgram experiments. Um, really looking forward to that, and we've got some great guests. Uh, Kate, Dr. Kate Burns and Dr. Chuck Ryback are going to come talk uh, The Experimenter. Uh, in an episode after that. So you can join us for the movie or you can just listen to the episode uh, when it comes out. Uh, should be great. Um, other than that, I want to thank Jason Cowell once again. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I want to thank our producer, Kate Farley. I want to uh, thank uh, our podcast artist, Kimberly Vlees. And I want to thank our intern, Sophie Seelan, who's right here and often serves as my brain. So <laughs> thank you all very much.